sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. It's Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. And welcome to 2023, I think, year four of doing this. And man, it is a damn fun good time doing this and hearing from all of is you. Thanks right? so much for... I think yeah. you're right. I think we started yeah. in 2019. That's insane. Uh, you know, you can get involved in the show. That's that's what's made this show last, is people like you getting involved in the show. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. And uh, one of the letters that we have gotten recently comes from a guy named Tim. He's in Lubbock, Texas. You ever been to Lubbock, Texas? I've been through it, yeah, but I've never... I didn't stop, but... Well, uh, he writes this. I'm surprised there hasn't been an episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories about Buckethead. (laughs) (laughs) It's fair. (laughs) I think that's a fair criticism of the show. There should be lots to tell, and I probably know very little. I would love to see what you guys can dig up. And I'm going to throw this out here because I think it's a no from you. You didn't see Buckethead, and I saw Buckethead right before the pandemic. Really? Yeah, it was a school thing. Yes, it was. Wait, 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 wait. What? You saw Buckethead play at a school? No, he played at the Palace Theater. Okay. But... But I got the tickets like a whole like a mess of kids from the elementary school where my kid went to elementary school. Then uh, we went to go see Buckethead. Wait, and, like what? Parents came. Oh Wait, yeah, this was oh, yeah. 2019. And when was I this? Think, or 2018, 2019? I was I was stunned watching it because I think I'm a little like Tim a bit where I just knew I was like so uh, this is now Slash. Right, and right. It's really KFC hat. Um, yeah. So you 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 didn't you didn't know a lot about him before you got to see him in concert. There there was a there was a record I, that I really loved in in college called Praxis. Oh and yeah. Praxis, Praxis was I think John Zorn, Bootsy Collins, yes. and uh, and so and Buckethead was a part of that. Yeah. And then the lead singer of the Boredoms. So yeah, it would it would break into John Zorn playing just that incredible, incredible like manic like stuff on the sax, and then the Boredom's guy just screaming, really like yeah. like super distorted vocals, like fuzzbox vocals, and then you would get Buckethead playing, and the guitars would pan from the left ear to the right. I mean, it's, like, it's it was wild. The, it's avant-garde stuff, really. I mean, oh, like, yeah. so yeah. so if you're completely unfamiliar, let's just back up for a second. I want to hear more about this Buckethead concert you went to, though. Was he the headliner? Was it just the Buckethead show? It was just Buckethead, yeah. It was totally That's weird. crazy. Okay, so I, I have no recollection of him ever being in the market, so I have somehow to- totally missed that. Uh, if you're completely unfamiliar, Buckethead, guitar player, really good guitar player, his entire career has been spent in costume. Uh, he clocks in late 80s, early 90s. He's been around for like more than 30 years at this point, but he's a really interesting case of celebrity because, I mean, especially for 2023, where you have to like take pictures of your food to stay relevant as a celeb or a performer, this dude is sort of an anti-celebrity, right? Like He's famous enough to sell tickets for Murdoch to go see him at a decent-sized theater in a mid-sized city, uh, and he does collaborations with really famous people. You just mentioned that. Uh, that's yeah. a lot of what he does is collab with other people. It, yeah. It, I mean, this is wild. He barely gives interviews. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then the 
two decades, two decades into the proliferation of the internet, you can st- you still can't hardly find a picture of him without no, the I mask. Don't, I don't know. I don't know what he looks like without. Yeah. In the show notes, there's an archive blog that popped up when I was researching. It's from like 2011. And people would submit photos of what they think he looks like without the mask. <laughs> oh, no kidding? Yeah, there's been like 16 million pages oh. of this thing. You can scroll and scroll and scroll, and there's really like nothing there. There's like all these photos are basically all like pretty. It's pretty sure that it's not actually him. We do have a name, though. His name is Brian Patrick Carroll. Now, if you, you can find out real information about Brian Patrick Carroll. If you ask Buckethead, he will tell you that he was raised by chickens. Uh, mm. he, he often talks with a puppet instead of talking directly. It says that he was inspired by the movie Halloween 4 and A Dinner of Takeout Chicken. That is how he got his outfit there. I mean, it's all properly batshit. It's a KFC bucket. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On his head, which is like... Heavily branded. But, I mean, it is It is like his identity is like he's the guy with the chicken, the KFC bucket on his head. Yeah. Like, it's it, it makes the whole thing bizarre and weird. So what did you think of him in concert? I was, I was kind of expecting it to be, like, far out, totally, like, crazy avant-garde weird. Um, but I felt like he... He he was odd and crazy, and he would do like crazy, amazing, like super fast solos and stuff. But then I felt that he he was playing to part part of the crowd that was there that wasn't me, and I thought that was interesting. Well, so the music's yeah. actually pretty good. I mean, he has the avant garde stuff, and he does the crazy soloing stuff live and all that. But like, if you just go pull up an album, like it's I mean, it's instrumental, and yeah. it's like you know, it's heavy on on you know sort of a certain guitar sound but it's not bad i I wouldn't complain if somebody had a buckethead record on in most cases and it's not pop music no how's that i mean that's true did he do the thing when you saw him where he threw out toys into the audience and like gave people yeah there's like a whole so there's this whole experience like if you go see him where he stays in the costume the whole time he doesn't talk he hands he he, like the other part of this story is that he's pretending to be a robot so sometimes he does like robot dancing and stuff yes yeah he does robot dancing thanks for jogging my memory like how freaky like is this thing okay so i mean listen the what what our buddy from lubbock is asking for here tim is asking could we dig up some stories to tell. And let me tell you, there are quite a few. But when I really went excavating, the story at the center of his celebrity, the obvious one for me and you, the story that defines him in the mainstream and makes him big enough to talk about on this show is his intersection with Guns N' Roses. Yeah, and imagine as a fan who, you know, isn't listening to um, Think About You on side two of Appetite, and they really love the, you know, coma and estranged and the videos. Um, and you're more of a casual fan because you like Guns N' Roses and showing up to see them at a certain time in their career. And Buckethead was the guitar player and how weird that had to be instead of seeing Slash underneath the hat. Well, and what's uh, so interesting, too, that I saw pointed out that I didn't really think about until I looked at two pictures side by side is he's like 
the photo negative version of Slash. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. Right. So it's I, totally it's totally weird. And it's like, well, if a guy could do that gig, he can do that gig. Yeah. He's a talented. He's really he's a very talented guitar player. He's, you know, so it's very different. That is the story I want to tell. I want to talk about when he when Buckethead replaces Slash and Guns N' Roses. But there's a couple things. First, we need to do a deep dive on him. And then number two. I mean, there's no way to tell this story without really telling the story of Chinese democracy. So that's what we're going to get into. We're going to wow. talk about Buckethead. And we're going to talk about the album that almost wasn't. And that I don't know. Is this like the most disappointing rock album in history? Chinese democracy? Uh, it, it took a long time to make. Tim, by the way, if I had a virtual Dodge Challenger with glass packs on them right now, this would be the car we would get in so we can have this conversation about Buckethead and freaking Chinese democracy. It's like, holy shit, I wasn't... I just thought, I was like, wow, are we going to talk about like where he, how he learned how to play guitar? Like, oh, it really was it the chickens? God, he, dude, you know. there's so much on this guy. Okay, so Brian Patrick Carroll, May of 69. So he's... Uh, He's pushing towards what is that? 50 mid fifty, mid fifties, mid fifties. So he's pushing towards sixty. Southern California guy starts learning guitar when he's twelve. Uh, says it's an elderly neighbor that teaches him, um, and then he starts learning in the back of music stores, like guys like you and I did. Uh, huh. He's in a band or two in his teenage years, but when he's nineteen, he enters a songwriting contest in Guitar Player Magazine. <laughs> this oh my is, god! This starts his ascent. He gets runner up. And Guitar Player Magazine gets the attention of the guy that runs the magazine at the time. His name is Yas Obrecht. And uh, the story was a little hard for me to verify, but there is a story that, like, around this time, Buckethead and his parents make a trip to the offices of Guitar Player Magazine and leave a demo tape with the secretary and then go to lunch down the street. And Yas Obrecht shows up at lunch to tell Buckethead how great he is. Wow. And this, so this is 80s. So if it was late 80s, yeah, was late 80s. 69. Uh -huh. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where we have 88, 89 is when it sort of starts for him. And whether or not that story is true about the restaurant within a few years, it does seem true that Bucket lives in Yaz Obrecht's basement for a little while. Um, and this is how he gets his connections into the music industry, which makes a lot of sense because his entry into the music industry is through is with these like technical and technically skilled musicians not through rock and roll we've already Rolling. talked about yeah. some of these people john zorn and bill laswell are basically the guys that that put him in their orbits and then create these groups like praxis um it, he, i mean he eventually will spend time with another guy who has created a sort of uh, a character to inhabit that's bootsy collins he'll he'll record yeah. with bootsy collins a lot yeah oh yeah yeah uh now when does the costume come into the picture that is Somewhat unclear, but the answer is fairly early. As I alluded to earlier, he does say that the 1988 horror movie Halloween 4 okay. uh, was a big inspiration. He watched it. I mean, the way he tells the story or has told the story in the few interviews he's done uh, is that he almost immediately went to find a Michael Myers-esque mask. Ends up with this sort of, it's not really Michael Myers. It's like a cross between Michael Myers and a Kabuki mask. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I get it. And okay. then, And then he says... That that night, after he bought the mask, he went and got chicken. This is a quote. I'm going to read you a quote. Oh, gosh. I was eating it, and I put the mask on, and then I put the bucket on my head, and I went to the mirror, and I just said, bucket head. That's bucket head right there. It was just <laughs> one of those things. After that, I wanted to be that thing all the time. I thought it made sense with the way I play. I play all this weird stuff, but if I look like me, 
it's not going to work. But if uh, I look like a freak, it works. I can work anything into that character and make it totally work. All the things I love in life, like Disney, Giant Robot, Texas Chainsaw, even though I'm wearing a mask and have a character, it's more real. More about what I'm really like because I'm too shy to let a lot of things out. Every reason I became Buckethead and am Buckethead has to do with the way I live. It's not because I thought I would be successful. I never use anything that isn't part of what I really loved as a child or love right now. Brian, do you want to watch Halloween 4 together? <laughs> I do. It's definitely like one of them I've not seen. I've seen a yeah. lot of the Halloween franchise, but I've not seen 4. Yeah, I've, I've seen at least through 3. I couldn't tell you what that one's about. I have no idea. All. I mean, I'll tell you what it's about. It's about Michael Myers. Yeah. Whipping yeah. ass. But I, I did tell a group of young, young tweens over the New Year's holiday that they really should see Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And then after I did that, I was like... That was a really terrible idea. As That's an adult. The, supposed to be the better one, right? Oh, oh, it is. Yeah, two's amazing. Two, oh, it is. And oh, then I was like, is. I just did. I was like, am I sending these like, you know, twelve-year-old impressionable little girls to, yeah, this to watch I'm... the guy who's who has the plate in his head and he's like <laughs> digging at it with the metal thing and and eating it, well, like eating it off of the the little poking thing like that's freaking disgusting man listen up horror movies and uh michael myers and leatherface in particular all important parts of this story so we're coming back to that i i do want to mention something though that came out in that quote and that quote is from one of the greatest articles i've ever read which we're going to talk more about in a few minutes it's one of the few interviews that exist it comes from 1996 also in guitar player magazine and it's hmm. it's great it's in the show notes it's like Absolutely one of the greatest interviews ever. We'll talk more about it in a minute. What I do want yeah. to talk about first, though, is that he mentioned that that character allows him to play with the things that he likes. And one of the things he mentions that he likes is Disney. So if you are a Buckethead person, you know that one of Buckethead's obsessions, besides a guitar, is Disney. He, he grew up near Disneyland. He went there as a child. And he has never outgrown an obsession with it. For years, he has talked about seriously pursuing the creation of his own theme park called Buckethead oh. Land. Oh my gosh. There's also a lost album from 20 years ago of him doing Disney songs. I, I threw some things in the show notes about this if you want to go deeper, but it's basically a big mystery and a point of discussion for Buckethead hardcores. If you're a hardcore Buckethead person, you know about the Disney record, the lost Disney record. And I did a lot of research on this. Basically what is assumed to have happened is he is, you know, pretty hard on himself and he didn't think he could get it to where he wanted it. So he's never released it, but he did record a full record of Disney songs at some point around 2000. And that hasn't leaked at all. No, it's not like, so there's a lot of him doing snippets in concerts. If you go on YouTube and look, you can find him doing a little bit of, different Disney songs, but the actual record is no, it is not out. All now, right. additionally, in 2005, he did a U.S. tour that started in Orlando and ended in Anaheim, and he called it the Disney World to Disneyland tour. So this Disney connection is a really big part of Buckethead lore. That, wow. So like I said, back to this magazine article, that quote comes from this 1996 article in Guitar Player Magazine called Destroy All Monsters. And the writer spends the day at Disneyland with Buckethead. 
Oh, this is super famous. So, I forgot that this was a thing. I've never read this interview, but I remember hearing about it. So I had to was find that, an archived version of it. So Guitar Player Magazine doesn't have a web presence anymore. There are people who have saved stuff on these Buckethead fan sites that have this. And there is a piece or a portion of this article where it is described that they are riding Rolling Thunder at Disneyland in California and Buckethead is in full costume. <laughs> and freaking out teenagers. You you thought Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 was freaking out teenagers. Buckethead on Rolling Thunder is freaking out teenagers. This is one of the greatest articles I've ever read in the history of doing this show. It's so good. And I hope this guy won a damn Pulitzer for it. Um, okay, so and th- this is the thing. We mentioned the costume on the ride. The costume doesn't come off. We, we've alluded to this. He has basically for 30 years kept the costume on. There's some early stuff you can find. There's bas- I basically found like three interviews. One of them we're going to talk about at the end of the show. This one is the main one we're going to talk about. And then there's like some really early stuff he did in the early 90s. Like with his, almost sounds like it's with his buddies or something. Like if you dig around on YouTube, you can find compilations of like, here's all the interviews we can find from Buckethead. And it only lasts like 10 minutes because there's not much out there. And there's like some really early stuff that where he clearly like hadn't really figured out the character yet. But other than that, there's like nothing out there. The costume's always on. And, you know, when you think about the long lineage that he's pulling from here, from people like Bootsy and the whole Parliament and P-Funk team to guys like Kiss, who I think are applicable to this conversation to some degree. Sure. All of those people exist in a bit of both places. There's the character and the alter ego. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't really exist for Buckethead. There are pretty amazing videos and interviews in the show notes that you can browse that speak to how deep this portrayal goes. The best example is this interview clip with Brain. And if you know a lot about Guns N' Roses, you know Brain. But Brian Brain Mantia has plays with Buckethead for most of his career in different formations. He's in a version of Praxis at some point, I believe. He's in GNR yep. when Bucket's in GNR. Yeah. And Brain does this interview a few years back and starts telling stories about how Bucket basically doesn't break character and how hilarious and frustrating it was for the law, the G, the GNR lawyers, because he would show up to business meetings with the puppet, and, and the puppet would talk, and the puppet would talk. So these like high-powered lawyers who are trying to get Chinese democracy to happen, which becomes we'll talk some about this, becomes the focus of a whole group of people. How do we get, how does Geffen Records recover the millions and millions of dollars they're sinking into this GNR record that takes 15 years to materialize? Um, and at the center of it, you have a guy in a chicken bucket with a puppet who will not talk directly to anyone. So, Which is like fantasy Disney amazing yeah I mean, and, and so when you think about all that right when you think about the horror movie and the Disney in a blender and it all sort of makes sense this ridiculousness that he's doing makes sense so let's let's get to the guns and roses of it all let's get to the Chinese democracy of it all okay I'm excited I by mean, the way brain I wanted to say this brain was in brain primus yeah he was in primus. Yeah, yeah yeah and and uh, and Tom Waits too yeah 
So uh, there's a lot of Primus connections to Buckethead too. We haven't mentioned that, but Les Claypool and Buckethead. You know, you think you, these guys yeah. find each other, right? Like, like Buckethead is sort of like an even weirder Les Claypool on a different instrument. I mean, that's sort of a way to think about them. Yeah. Uh, so for those of you who don't know GNR history, let's just let's give them a primer. I'll start this, and then you jump in wherever you want to jump in. Okay. Sure. Let's go back to September '91. GNR have released two albums. Use Your Illusion 1, Use Your Illusion 2. Same day. These are massive hits. The band's doing a world tour. And on that tour in November, Izzy leaves the band. Gilby Clark comes in. After that tour, a couple of years go by, Guns release a covers record. Not much in the way of new music. Yeah, and not necessarily that great either. And then there is no GNR. Well, right. So, sort of. That comes out in 93. By 94, the band is starting to sporadically work on stuff, but nothing's getting done. And then the lineup stuff starts happening. So, Gilby Clark gets replaced by Paul Tobias. And Paul Tobias becomes... I mean, even though like people don't really know anything about Paul Tobias, he's very important to the GNR story because he pisses everyone off. And so, everyone hates Paul Tobias except Axel. But the thing about Axel is he's at the center of this universe, so he's making these decisions. Axel starts pushing towards new and different sounds. But some of what I read, and I'm interested if you know this or know much about this, is like that at some point around this time, Axel gets Nine Inch Nails records and he gets sort of obsessive. And it's before it's a little before this. It was on the the world tour for Use Your Illusion, and he was wearing uh he was wearing the sin t-shirt that comes off yeah, of yeah. um yeah so he had the nine inch nail sin t-shirt so he would wear that in concert so i mean it was impossible not to be if you were in a band like that not to be affected by what trent Reznor was doing because there's metal and punk and bowie and all kinds of shit happening at once i mean it's and- interesting to project our 2023 viewpoint and some of our thoughts onto this, right? But it it makes a lot of sense when I read this that you have this guy having an identity crisis. I mean, Axel has, is was abused his whole life. We've talked about this on old episodes, right? He's yeah. always worried about abandonment, so he's cutting the cord first, right? We see this over and over. He's abandoned by supermodels. He's but you know he was abandoned by his parents. He has these real deep-seated insecurities, and then he's also got this reputation now that he's trying to maintain around musical genius. And and not only that, almost I don't know if revolutionary is too high is too big of a word, but he has this sort of taste and this movement. And so it's it's clearly been threatened by Nirvana, which we've talked about before with on the Axel and Kurt episode. And so you could you I think it makes sense, especially the way you just said that, right? About like the metallic elements of what Nine Inch Nails was doing is probably a lifeline. And Axel is saying, like, ooh, here's the next form of this. How does GNR incorporate this sort of thinking into what we do next? And he gets caught up in this whirlwind where the rest of the guys are all just on heroin. You know, like they, they're, they're yeah. not so much worried about the, you know, maintaining or, or progressing. They're more, I guess they're more worried about maintaining. Yeah. And, and for Axel, um, you know, he, he's battled, you know, a specific mental illness, like all of his adult life. And that's made things difficult, um, for him, like without having to be like a, 
when when he if he wasn't ever a junkie like just being sober like is definitely kind of difficult at well, times and uh, yeah and as you alluded to right the wheels are coming off the bus so nobody's getting along there's tons of disagreements while they're trying to figure out how to make new music slash cuts the cord in 96 he leaves the band they audition a bunch of people and then tra- uh axel gets gets a little bit of what he wanted he gets a guitar player from trent Reznor. he gets robin yeah. fink yeah yeah which is a what an amazing career like trajectory for that person to leave working in you know that band that you know played woodstock 94 and was doing arenas and did a tour with david bowie and now he's in guns and roses and so now he's got he's got the sound he wants in his head he's got the guitarist who was making that sound on stage and now they need a producer and so you know they go to a guy who's not very famous yet except for in the electronica world they get a guy named moby yeah, Moby. Yeah, I forgot this is a thing. Um, yeah, they did talk to Moby. So they try to get, and this becomes the thing with while they the how do we find the right producer? This is part of what dogs this whole process down. Who is running the show? Who is the the ringmaster at the Guns and Roses circus? And that becomes a huge issue because they they don't have somebody who is guiding the band and helping them all get on the same page. That doesn't work out with Moby. By April of 97, Matt Sorum and Axel get into it. Matt's gone. Duff bails in August. Yeah, like Matt Sorum, uh, solid fucking drummer. Good Lord, he's a great, like super solid drummer. Came from the cult. And then Duff is like the lifeline of the band too. So So who do they replace? Who Who do they replace on the drums? So they is that when Brain joined then? No. So they get Josh Freese. Okay. Freese is a linchpin here because this dude, if you don't know that name, this dude has become like the session drummer. He's played on 40 major rock albums. He's been a part, officially and unofficially, of tons of bands. Perfect Circle, yeah. Puddle of Mud, Stinson, Paramore. He's done tours with Paramore. Uh He's he like a couple of years ago he was Sting's drummer. Uh, when when here's just you know to give some perspective for the Taylor tributes the Foo Fighters yeah. called Josh. So he's that big of a deal. But in the late '90s he wasn't that that big of a deal yet. His main claim yeah. to fame he had a lot of street cred because he'd been in the Vandals and he'd been in Devo. Mm. Yeah, and that guy might be the next drummer for the Foo Fighters. Oh, he Possibly. probably will be. I mean, that that, yeah. ma- that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. Axel brings in here. He's in GNR. He was in GNR for <laughs> for a little bit here in the late nineties. So, <laughs> Axel brings him in, and then he says, "Who else should I bring in? Because now I've got to replace basically the whole band." And you know who Freeze says? Freeze says, "He says what Tom, you or Tom, I would say." Call Tommy. Tommy. Cut Tommy Stinson from the replacement. <laughs> he says, so Tom, "Call yeah. motherfucking Tommy Stinson," and that's how we get. Tommy Stinson from the motherfucking replacements. We were just having a conversation before we started recording about uh, Billy Joe Armstrong. And one of the times that you and I have actually seen Billy Joe Armstrong in concert more than once together. Yeah. One of the times was when he was playing guitar for the replacements, which was an all time. Like, what is that? That's like a top five show, right? Oh, yeah. 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 And there was a there was a call or a text beforehand to warn me. Uh, so we would see it 
and uh, Paul Westerberg, quick story. I'll get us back there. Westerberg's mic just falls down during a song. And mm-hmm. he's and Billy Joe comes from the side of the whatever stage he was on and fixes the mic for Paul, like gets it all the way up and then tightens the mic and turns and kisses Paul Westerberg directly on the lips and then walks back over well, on the side of the stage to play. And it was like, wow, that's that he meant that. And remember how damn nervous he was? It was oh, yeah. unbelievable. I remember turning to you and being like, dude, I've never seen somebody who is like a own the stage level frontman rock star. Yeah. Like just totally shaking his boots. And he's playing power chords. Like they're not yeah. it, it's like not even as hard as his own music what the replacements do, but it was just the level of influence and the level of admiration and affection that he had for those guys. It was a beautiful night. Yeah, and man, we got to get off this subject because it will never end. So <laughs> so Josh Freeze. Yeah, so keep in mind. Guy, he's the guy that tells Axel to get Tommy Stinson. Yeah, so he's it's amazing. He says, call Tommy Stinson. And then keep in mind, this whole decade, like basically since 91, the band is supposed to be working on this new slash next GNR project. And so this is all well documented, so I won't get too in the weeds. But basically... Like I already alluded to, the problem is this producer issue. They, they can't find the right producer. So here's just a quick rundown. Youth, the guy who just goes by that name, who mm-hmm. produced U2, he's involved at one point. They get this guy, Sean Beaven, involved for a while. Geffen keeps trying to incentivize Axel to finish music by offering him, like, hey, if you get it done in, you know, by March of 99, we'll give you an extra million dollars. Like, big money incentives. At one point, Axel shelves the new music and tries to get the band to re-record Appetite because he <gasps> because he wants to quote unquote spruce it up with new recording technology. Oh, I have no idea ever. Can you wow. imagine like I mean so we're talking end of the 90s, so only like 10 years, 10, 15 years yeah. after the original recording. So that would be different. And now imagine re-record I'm I'm not a big fan of bands re-recording albums. I know this happens sometimes for legal reasons and for like money reasons. Uh, you know, it's a way to make royalty. If you didn't own the royalties on the original recordings, you make new recordings. I mean, Everclear has done this. Like a lot of bands have done this. But yeah, and and Mike, I think it's Mike Clink was the producer of Appetite. And I don't like I don't like how that record's mixed. But you know, there's at that point, Stones like, you, records that I don't. Yeah, like you can't mixed, mess but. with an album like that. So it, at some point, the other band members put forth enough material. This is at least this is what is said to have happened. They put up enough material to fill a thousand CDs with different mixes to possible songs. They're constantly sending stuff out of the studio to Axel because Axel's not showing up in the studio. This becomes a key part of this story. He's not showing up that often. Uh, So in January 2000, the band manager, Doug Goldstein, said that the album was 99% done and was set for, quote, a summer 2000 release. In, (laughs) In February of 2000, Rolling Stone talks to Axel and Axel says that the album had been delayed because he was learning how to use new recording technology. And then in March, he realizes he has to replace Robin Fink because Robin Fink is going back to nine inch nails. Mm. So during all of this reshaping of GNR, while that's happening, let's go back to bucket for a second. Bucket is gaining notoriety of his own. So we we said early nineties, He's with these avant-garde guys, Zorn, Laswell, etc. Uh, but you know, there was always a poll from the rock world. 
GNR is not the first big band to consider inviting him in. Do you do you know who actually auditioned Buckethead to join them before GNR? Ah, uh, guitar player. Think think uh, about think about a band from the nineties, late eighties, nineties, who had a a very high profile guitar opening, much like Slash, in the early nineties, ninety three. So it's not Bon Jovi. No, it's not it's, to replace not to replace Richie Sambora with the wah pedal. Okay, the, the voice <laughs> the voice box thing. That's so not Bon Jovi. Okay, I'm trying to. I'm just trying to imagine what Bon Jovi would sound like with Buckethead on lead guitar. Yeah, and it can't be Kiss. No, no, it's it's a band squarely put in the '90s in most people's sort of it, recollections. Oh, okay. So it's Seattle band. Uh, no, it's it's the Chili Peppers. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, so Frusciante, they, they've had, they're, yeah, they're trying to figure out what to do with the Frusciante spot, and they give it to Eric Marshall, but they talk first to Buckethead, and so it goes Buckethead, then it goes to Eric Marshall, and then it goes to Dave Navarro. Yeah, there was one famous guy, I can't remember, I've kind of forgot it now because of last year being a mess. I read that the Chili Peppers had got a guy, and the band is really well-respected guitar player, and he played two gigs and got fired. Yeah, really short. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is that may be. I mean, I think that's sort of what happens to Eric Marshall. That that may be who you're thinking of. Are you talking about from that time period? Uh, I can't remember. I'm not sure. So not Eric, a huge Chili Peppers. Yeah, band. that's right. I forget that Eric Marshall's not in the band for very long, and then they get they get Navarro. They were trying to get Navarro, and Navarro was turning them down, and then he comes around. So mid '90s, Buckethead does some movie soundtracks. Um, later, he will work with Les Claypool. He's always got something going. He's working a lot of times on projects and collaborations and that sort of thing. And then in March 2000, he gets a call from Josh Freeze. So Axel had gotten Tommy through Josh. So now he goes back to him as he's realizing he has to replace Robin. And he says, you know, I've been seeing this guy, this bucket guy. Do you know that guy? And Josh Freeze is like, yeah, dude, I actually do sort of know him. They had met back in the early 90s. So Josh calls, literally calls like the Claypool compound, like calls up where the Primus people hang out and asks for Buckethead's number. And so they get Buckethead's number and they invite him to Axel's house for a Christmas party. And oh, wow. At some point they get this intel from Buckethead. I told you Leatherface was coming back into the story that and I think the way I heard this story, whether or not it's entirely true, is that it was slightly after Christmas that they had this party. So they like call him and have this introductory conversation. And at some point in the conversation, they're like, how was your Christmas? And Buckethead says, well, it's okay, but I didn't get this Leatherface doll that I wanted for Christmas. And oh, how funny. It's like some vintage re-release or something. And so he shows up at Axel's house and Axel gives him a wrapped package. Oh my gosh. With the Leatherface doll. And Buckethead is basically in at that point. Guess, guess where he signs the contract to join GNR? Disney Disney World. Yeah. Disneyland. Yeah. yeah. But on the Haunted Mansion. Oh. This is like well documented that this happened. That's I, So there's a Haunted Mansion at both Disney parks. Yeah, there is. Yeah. I went to the one in Florida. Yeah. Okay, I got it. So yeah. Buckethead is now officially the new slash anti-slash. But... The album is still not coming together. And so Buckethead joins this, but he this circus 
like he had to sort of know what was going on, but he's very, I mean, from everything I've read about him, he's very much just like works at his own pace, does his own thing, stays to himself. So who knows what he thinks he's getting into. He shows up and he's, he's like instantly sort of getting pissed because Axel is never in the studio. And he keeps being asked to play the same licks over and over. And at the time, they've got Roy Thomas Baker now in the production seat. I told you they keep switching producers. So Roy Thomas Baker is a British rock guy. He produced Queen. And he's, you know, telling the guy with the bucket on his head, all right, play it again, play it again, play it again. There is this amazing louder sound piece. Um, Not quite as good as the Guitar Player Magazine interview, but it's close. This guy named Scott Rowley wrote it in 2016. It's in the show notes, of course. It, it chronicles the making of Chinese democracy. And so a lot of what I'm about to unfurl comes from this. So if you want to go even deeper, go find that. But at this point in the band's story, Geffen is freaking out because they cannot get Axel to produce a record. They've gotten one underwhelming song out of him. Do you remember the song in the late 90s? Um, no, I don't think so. So it's in this movie called End of Days starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah. What is that song? It's called Oh My God, I believe. Oh, yeah. That's not the... Okay, but keep going. Okay, it's so... Like, didn't really hit me in the face. Like, Yeah, no, it's not a the, great... The, the Chinese democracy song. No, nobody's excited about that song. So yeah. they're, Geffen is freaking out. And so they pick up the phone and they call Tom Zutat. Does that name ring a bell as a Gino oh, fan? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. As a, <laughs> as a metal rock and roll thing. So yeah. you want to explain who he is? Uh, He's an A&R uh, guy. He's an A&R guy. He, yeah. yeah, and he, he, signed, he signed GNR, mm-hmm. but he signed other bands as well. Yeah, but um, his, his meal tickets GNR. So he, yeah. he basically is the guy that gets GNR all the way through Use Your Illusion to produce. So he's just, he stays on board, sort of unofficially, probably paid by the record label, to sort of push them forward. And he does this, he does this, he does this, and then he's out. He gets in a fight with Axel, and Axel fires him. And then he gets fired. In 1998, he gets fired by Geffen. I'm unclear as to why, but something happens, he gets, he gets in it, into it with the brass. So he actually moves back to New York with his estranged family and he starts hanging out with his daughter. He joins the PTA. He, he essentially quits the music business. Huh. And so he's two years into this life change and his phone rings <laughs> and he picks up the phone and it's Jimmy Iovine. Wow. And he okay. says, Tom, we cannot get a record out of GNR. And you are the, we are down to literally our last option. I'm sorry we're calling you. You're the last person that we think can do this because you have a track record. Will you please help us? And talking to Jimmy Iovine on the phone, he says, no. Hands up. (laughs) Next day, Doug Goldstein, GNR's manager. Ring, ring. Hey, I heard you talk to Jimmy. Will you please come help us? To Doug Goldstein, GNR's manager, Tom Zutat says, no. Day three, <laughs> phone rings. Axel. It's it's a conference call. It's Uh-oh. Doug and Jimmy. 
Listen, Tom. Don't have the band. Tom, the Tom, band. we get it. We get it. But will you at least take a meeting with Axel? Just one meeting with Axel. We'll fly you out here. Will you please talk to Axel? And so to this, because he still feels fondly for Axel, even though they had this big falling out, Tom agrees. Now, there is a whole lot of drama that happens next. But basically, and I debated whether or not to include this, I'm going to tell this story without the yeah, aid of it. notes. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, so do you know anything about the what went down between Zom Tutat, Tom Zutat, and Axel? Um, no, I don't know what happened here. So the way this piece explains it, and it's so well written, is that basically he flies to L.A., they pick him up, they take him to the studio, he walks in and Axel sits in a chair and Axel looks at him and he's like, hey, Axel, and they haven't seen each other in years, and he goes, Tom, I only have one question. What really happened with Aaron? And so then the story that unfurls is goes all the way back to the relationship that Axel had with Aaron Everly. Oh my God, which is forever. Okay. And so I'll give a very condensed version, but basically extremely dysfunctional relationship. Hmm. Yeah. Right. And hmm. there were constant fighting and Tom Zuta was very involved with the band at the time. And Aaron and Axel would get in a fight. Aaron would show up on Tom Zutat and his Zutat and his wife's uh, doorstep looking for oh. a place to stay, and they oh. would let her stay. And at some point, she tells he tells her, like after having you know this happening a lot, like you've got to like make some decisions and walk away from it. If this is like you don't want to be with Axel, you need to walk away. From it. Basically, he has some sort of like come to Jesus with her. She gets pissed, goes back to Axel, and tells Axel that he hit on her. Uh, and that's when everything falls apart. And so Tom gets fired. Axel's pissed because he's listening to Aaron. And Tom will deny, 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 deny. And Axel will not believe him. And it's basically his fall from grace with GNR. is all about wow. this. He said, she said bullshit. Wow, he comes back, takes the meeting. Meeting is a joke. Well, the okay. meeting is, tell me what really happened with Aaron. So they have this long conversation, and then Axel makes him go see like his spiritual guru and the woman who... Do you know, this was another crazy GNR side note that I don't want to get distracted by, but do you know who Axel, and I don't know if this is still the case, but during this period, at one point, and for a very long time, who Axel's like personal assistant, like who you went through to get to Axel, do you know who that person was? No, no. Who was it? So it's a, a woman who was, who I believe is from Mexico, but don't quote me on that, who was Stephanie Seymour's uh, maid. Okay, so his, his ex-girlfriend's maid. And was his spiritual advisor. No. No, the spiritual advisor is like somebody totally different. But the, Oh, she's she's the person that she's you have like to the personal talk. assistant. Yeah, okay. Like she's the assistant. It, one of these articles calls her the CEO of Axel Rose. Like she is like in charge of Axel. The maid. 
the maid. He hires her maid because they'd spent a lot of time together and they, they got an interview. This article has an interview with her and she's like, yeah, like I just, I worked with both of them because they were together and Stephanie always sort of treated me like shit and Axel was always super cool to me and like, and she's like a lot, I, I get the impression she's a lot older so I'm not even entirely sure if she's still alive but yeah. she was like sort of a maternal figure. Like, remember he had a totally fucked up relationship with his mom. Oh, yes. Yeah. That whole scene was so a he, disaster. He hires Stephanie Seymour's maid to be, and she becomes this huge force in his life for a very long time. Like, and I, I think it was mostly positive, but that is hilarious to me. And like, not it, something you well, hear about. And perfect for, for someone that goes from being a house cleaner to being the assistant to like Can one of the imagine? most famous rock musicians Can in the you world. Freaking imagine. Okay. So nah, they, crazy. anyway, after that woman and the spiritual guru sign off on Tom rejoining, he's back in the fold with Axel and the band. And one of the first things Axel needs from him is, okay, cool. You're back in Tom. The first thing he needs is this other crazy ass story about getting the drums on the tracks that they're working on to sound like the drums on Nevermind. Like he's oh obsessed God. with this. He's like, these don't sound like Dave Grohl's drums on Nevermind. And so he goes, and I guess it's Brain, who's who's the drummer at the time. Mm-hmm. So he goes to like just Tower Records and buys a copy of Nevermind and makes Brain listen <laughs> to it. He's like, make it sound like that. And then Brain does. Huh. And like like Axel had just never done that. Um, so he gets that done. And so Axel says, okay, you're back in the fold. They do negotiations with the record label. Geffen gives Tom a ton of money. Tom, like he keeps saying he wants more money to come back. And then they work out this back. He's like, if you can deliver by this date, you can pay me a certain percentage of it. If I get that delivery date. And if I don't, then I won't take that money. And he spoiler alert does not get the extra money, Hmm. but the Geffen is throwing money at him because that's the only way he's the only person they think can get this done. So he, he goes to Axel. He goes, okay, what's, what's my first job now that I'm officially, officially on board. And Axel's like, you got to get me Buckethead back. We've lost our guitar player. So again, I said Buckethead had gotten antsy because Axel wasn't showing up. He was pissed off at this producer and he just sort of like disappeared. And so Zutak calls Buckethead and he takes him to lunch and he lets Buckethead bitch. Buckethead doesn't like that producer. He doesn't think the record's ever going to come out. The whole process is too slow. All these things seem spot on to me. Tom assures him that he can get this record done. He's like, listen, the record label trusts me because I've done this before. I've got this track record. I've gotten all these other GNR records out. And then he asks him, he says, how can I convince you, Buckethead, to come back and join GNR? And how can I make the recording better for you? And this is a quote from Tom. He then went into buckethead mode. I mean, I was talking to Brian Carroll and he was confiding in me. And then suddenly buckethead was there and he was telling me some story about how his parents were chickens and how he was a chicken and how his mom was a hen and his dad was a rooster. And I couldn't tell whether this was fantasy or reality or who I was even talking to, but he definitely believed it. Then it's like Brian comes back and he's kind of saying, you know, I'd really like to make the movie of my life story and how I was raised in a chicken coop. It's the only place where I feel comfortable. First of all, let's just acknowledge how bad shit that is. Yeah. Is it, is it, is it an act or is it schizophrenia? Well, listen, at that moment, Tom has this idea because he's desperate. So he tells Buckethead. We're going to make the movie of your life, Buckethead. Close. We're going to make you a fucking chicken coop in the studio. Okay, 
It takes oh god. It takes two days. This is another quote from Tom. It's like an apartment within the studio that's a chicken coop. He's, chicken coop. he's got his chair to record and a little mini sofa in there, and there's like a rubber, rubber chicken with its head cut off hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> it's totally Buckethead's world. It's a Halloween in the chicken coop. Part chicken oh coop, part horror movie. We built oh. the coop, then we brought in his props and his toys, and we put straw on the floor. You could almost smell the chickens. And Tim... No- Tim, thank you for this letter. <laughs> Good God, this is so funny. Okay, there's a chicken coop. In so the well, here's the, here's the thing. This is this is still from Tom. No one was allowed to go in there apart from the assistant engineers to adjust the mics uh-huh. because he didn't want you to destroy the spirit and karmic vibe of the coop. Yeah, so you had to, he had he couldn't have other people playing with him. Right, it's chicken wire, isolated it's chicken yeah. wire all around him. So you could stand outside and talk to him, and you could look through, but. Nobody was allowed in there with his hacked up dolls and rubber chicken heads. So this works for a little bit. Bucket's back and Bucket is recording with this engineer that he doesn't even like. So everybody's happy. And then realizing that Tom will accommodate most of his requests, Bucket makes another one. If if we go back to that guitar player interview uh, from 96, Bucket mentions that like he would vibe like when he was first starting or whatever, or even maybe at the time which wasn't that far into his career. He was into like putting on horror movies and playing while watching the horror movies, like sort of almost scoring, like making his own score. It was like an inspiration thing. Yeah, right. So uh, then, because he realizes Tom will accommodate his request because they're counting on him, he has another request for Tom. And again, remember, Axel's not like around the studio very much. So it's like the producer and then the musicians are coming in and out. So he tells Tom, bring me a TV. And Tom says, okay. He says, what are you going to watch on the TV? And Bucket says, hardcore pornography. Uh, it's not chickens or, or Halloween. No, okay. it's not chickens. Uh, it's cocks. So remember. Thanks we, for we, going there. <laughs> we've already painted a picture of Tom as the fixer. He's just trying to get this album delivered to the record label. And we've already acknowledged that Axel's not been in the studio. So. And now it's like the good place. What type of pornography would you like to see? Exactly. Like exactly. Is, he's having fun with it at this point. He puts this stupid TV in there, and Buckethead is watching hardcore porn and recording Chinese democracy. And one night while this is while this is happening, Axel walks in. And oh let me just describe let me let Tom Zutat describe this pornography. Quote, pretty hardcore stuff. Not soft porn by any stretch. Okay, so just so you know. Axel Axel walks in, and he sees what's happening. And he goes to this producer, and he's like, what the actual fuck? And he's like, yeah, man, it's like Buckethead vibing. And he's like, this is not the vibe that I want on my fucking record. (laughs) <laughs> so he he's like really up he's worried about this right he's like this is like sexually violent now I also think this part of the story is like unbelievable to me though I, it's not that unbelievable because I think that there's a lot of people who are not very self-aware and I would say Axl Rose is probably one of them yeah but like but when yeah. when the guy who fucked a woman and then put it on the record and it was it was Steven Adler's girlfriend also yeah just so right. it can be in the middle of Rocket Queen? When yeah. he's upset about the porn you're watching, what the hell are you watching? Right? I, I, th- I think that 
I think that there is no way for Axel to control any of this situation. And he wasn't involved, dude. Yeah, so he, he totally wasn't up, involved. We, I mean, when you show up in a studio and you're the singer of the band and there's a guy in a chicken coop with a bucket <laughs> on his head watching porn and there's like chopped up baby dolls that is going to freak you out like i think it's a completely separate issue versus like what he was doing with adler's girlfriend and rocky queen well like this is what we've also it, talked on this show about coop. it's a chicken coop <laughs> with chicken wire in a fucking recording studio so he's but but dude we've already, we've talked on this show before about that song and i forget which song it is but there's like a song about axel beating the shit out of his neighbor though because he thinks she talks too much or whatever like he writes violent stuff that's misogynistic about i'm not defending buckethead in his porn selection i'm just saying it seems hypocritical to me that axel rose of all people is like we can't have that vibe anyway so he takes he, buckethead to get are you talking about get in the ring where he talks about how like every he insults like elder writers all and everything. sorts of songs like that so he he tells Buckethead that he shouldn't be watching that sort of stuff. Buckethead is sad and embarrassed, and he just, like, leaves. And this is, Zutat says this, quote, it was not because he was angry or because he thought he should be able to watch what he wanted. I think it was more the emotional implications that Axel brought up to him, that it wasn't right to be inspired by shit like that. Mm. So... Wow. There's this other crazy story that at one point, I read this multiple places, that Buckethead, that there's like too much of this story, so I'll sort of breeze over it, but basically like Axel had these really nice dogs that were like part dog, part wolf, like mostly wolf, but domesticated enough to raise, and they had puppies, and so he was going to give Zutat one of them to take to his daughters, and at one point it's in the studio and it takes a shit in Buckethead's chicken coop. <gasps> And Buckethead comes back and refuses to let anyone clean it because he likes the smell. Okay. So, anyway, okay. Let, let's get back to the actual story. The year is 2001. Uh, this new GNR with Buckethead will play their first shows in January. 2001. The record doesn't come out for seven years. Dude, I know. I know. Spoiler alert. If someone just dropped onto this earth and has never listened to a rock and roll podcast or know anything about Guns N' Roses, yeah, bro, There's this record does not happen for no, another it, seven fucking years. No. It, let, it, let me, it let me put not, this... They play me, gigs. They play gigs where you're getting at. They play well, like Rock and Rio. And, can I put this in perspective to say that 2001 is the year that I graduated high school and 2008 was the year that I celebrated my first child's first birthday. So, like, that much life happened between this i think we're gonna put the album out and then actual putting the album out that's a lot yeah that's a yeah, lot yeah so yeah. uh all right that's a lot okay they play their first shows january 2001 vegas brazil they announce a european tour and then they cancel it twice both of these times doug goldstein the gnr manager will release a statement and blame buckethead for the cancellations really the first Whoa. time it's that Buckethead had a stomach ailment. The second time is that, quote, unfortunately, Buckethead's illness not only stopped the tour, but it slowed down our progress on Chinese democracy. They're trying to blame Buckethead for this stalled out record that's been stalled out at this point for almost a decade. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Uh, Buckethead does get sick. Uh, 
there's like hemorrhaging and testing and he gets a he gets one diagnosis of of a gastric ailment and then one doctor says he has tuberculosis so there's like stuff actually happening dates get moved or canceled and then midsummer there's reports that start coming out the buckethead is gone again that he's really out of the band and then there's another trip to disneyland and bucket and axel hit the amusement park and by the end of it bucket supposedly works out a new deal with axel and this new deal says that Buckethead will give Guns N' Roses three days a week. Which is amazing, the one, that they went to Disney together and that he negotiated the amount of time that he was going to work. Then there's this infamous 2002 tour. Do you remember this? It get, like, I remember. Yeah. yeah I, I remember I, the tour. Axel gets, like, he doesn't show up for, like, three shows in a row. And so, like, Clear Channel or whoever is containing that at the time just pulls the plug on the entire tour after like 15 dates. Uh, the band continues to not make real progress in the studio. And while guns and roses remained inactive in 2003, Buckethead takes a hiatus from the band and he releases several albums. He tours with his old band, this band called deadly creeps. He auditions for another band. He auditions for Ozzy Osbourne. Oh, um, do you have the quote from Ozzy? I, I actually didn't put it in the notes, but it's hilarious because he's like the basically the essentially the quote is that idiot's not going to take that mask off. There's no way I'm letting him on stage with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I saw it said um, he like he's like he wouldn't take off the mask, the bucket, right? And so then he came back later and he had on a Martian. A yeah, Martian yeah. mask. He comes back a second time and he has like a different weird mask on. And Ozzy's like, fuck you, dude. I'm I'm like, but, I'm the king of darkness. But he finds out his name's Brian. Uh, and he's and he said, Well, I'll call you that. And he said, Well, no one calls me that except my mom. And Ozzy <laughs> said, Pretend I'm your mom. <laughs> um, I just love I love to see Ozzy get out Ozzy'd. Like Yeah, and here here's Oz this is Ozzy getting out Ozzy. This is the quote. This is Ozzy verbatim saying this. What happens if one day he's gone and there's a note saying, I've been beamed up. Don't get me wrong. He's a great guitar player. He plays like a motherfucker. That's from Revolver in 2000, like 2009 or something. Uh, that article was. But yeah, um, he was out Ozzy for sure. So February 2004, Buckethead is rumored to quit again. And this will be the final time. Uh, March 16th, 2004, Blabbermouth publishes this article with his opening paragraph. I included this just because of the second part of this paragraph, which I think is hilarious. Rumors of guitarist Buckethead's departure from Guns N' Roses have gained strength in the recent weeks, with many speculating that GNR singer Axl Rose's alleged decision to resume taking guitar lessons will result in him taking on guitar duties. <laughs> right? That was my reaction. That was it. There was a lot of LOLing when I read that. Yeah. And I've still never seen Axel right. pick Can you a imagine? guitar ever, no. So then Buckethead leaves, and they issue a statement. Axel issues a statement. during. I mean, I think it comes from the band, but during his tenure with the band, Buckethead has been inconsistent and erratic in both his behavior and his commitment, despite being under contract, creating uncertainty and confusion and making it virtually impossible to move forward with recording rehearsals and live plans with confidence. His transient lifestyle has made it near impossible for even his closest friends to have any form of communication with him whatsoever. Yeah, it's probably some of that's decently accurate, but it sounds a little hurtful. Well, it, okay, I mean, it might be decently accurate, but again, 
we're back to the porn argument. We're talking about Axel Rose. Like, this guy got a tour canceled because he wasn't showing up for the dates. GNR was famous for going on two hours late because of Axel's shenanigans. That's not Buckethead. No, and also it took over a decade to get this album. It released. took like fifteen years, dude. So I mean, it depends on when you when you pinpoint the beginning of this. But if they were really writing as early as ninety three, it takes fifteen years. Yeah, and if you just want to be like, okay, so when did Slash and Duff and Matt leave the band? Ninety six, like, ninety seven. So it takes still, a solid ten. Still, it's like a decade there without the band having to. You know, get a new drummer to ask, who should we hire as a bass player? Yeah, right. Like the whole it, thing is a so farce. If, if you think that Buckethead was too weird or lazy, because they sort of make it sound like he's not dependable, make sure to check out what he's been doing for the last 16 years since he left yeah. Guns N' Roses. Do you know how many albums that guy has out? Does he have, is it 40 or 60? Oh, no. He did 60 in 2014. He has <laughs> almost 300 records out. <laughs> So, dude, GNR can't put out one record in 15 years. Yeah, this during the Rock and Roll Hall of albums. Fame, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they have like four albums. Dude, they're they're not all on Spotify, but if there are a lot on Spotify, just go scroll through Buckethead's discography on Spotify. It's crazy. The other thing that's hilarious to me about Buckethead in general is that his web presence is shit. Like, if you go look at his website and stuff, it's like active. But it looks like it was built on Geosites, Cities, whatever it's called, in like 98. Like, it's all of it's terrible. And he has a he has a Facebook page that is called Buckethead Official Website. Like, that's the name of the Facebook page. <laughs> and so, okay, a couple other things we got to get to. Uh, there's this one really interesting artifact that I have not mentioned at all. You are a, you are a big Netflix doc guy. You're like the king yeah. in my life of Netflix documentaries. So you've probably seen the Stutz documentary, yes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, about about, about the, the, the shrink, the psychiatrist. Yeah, so Phil Stutz, Jonah Hill made a film about Phil Stutz. Phil Stutz is a psychotherapist, and he works closely with a dude named Barry Michaels. And they wrote these books together called Coming Alive. And in 2017, when the first one came out to promote them, they decided to make a podcast. And for this podcast they went to some of their famous clientele and asked them if they would come onto their podcast and Get talk the about out. the psychotherapy. Get out. So I didn't know Stutz had a podcast. And so this particular okay. one is Barry Michaels, not Stutz, but Barry Michaels it's- and motherfucking Buckethead. And let me tell you, they don't talk about guitar playing or Guns N' Roses or anything. They fucking talk about psychotherapy for like an hour. And it is off all of the streaming platforms. Like it's not there anymore. The coming alive podcast is gone, but some saints on the internet have put it on YouTube and it is in the show notes. So if you want to hear, if you want to hear Buckethead and let me tell you, it sounds like, I mean, he like, it's sort of a hard listen. Like he is not engaging. He barely talks. He mumbles and it's not even like a character. Because that character's not there. Like, the bucket guy, the chicken guy is not there. It's like an actual person. But they're basically just talking about how he's afraid to make cold calls to get his amusement park off the ground. Like, that legitimately is part of the conversation. Wow. Fascinating. So, there you go. There's one thing. Um, Then there's, like, this been this other story from the past few, it's not, like, maybe the past year or so, where Buckethead had a bunch of guitars stolen. Did you see this? Mm -mm. No. 
So this is a little bit like the Randy Bachman story that we've talked about on the show before. He, but Buckethead had a, and I, I don't really understand the specifics. He had a bunch of guitars stolen, and then uh, he had somebody get one back. And like the reporting on this is not good. Metal Injection has a piece up on it. Um, and this is from August of 22, so this is fairly recently. Uh, last wow. week, Buckethead reported that 10 of his guitars had been stolen. Buckethead called it th- the theft, uh, quote, tremendous loss, said he'll never be able to replace them. And while a handful are still missing, it appears his white Les Paul has been returned. According to a post on Buckethead's Facebook page, a fan named Taylor Bellamare helped him recover the Les Paul. I want to thank Taylor for helping to return this guitar to me, said Buckethead. So many tears with so many emotions, I moved beyond... Uh, the guitar is very dear, and this letter means even more. So Bubble, uh, Buckethead then publishes the letter from Bellamare, which reads as follows. Thank you so much for inspiring me to play guitar for the past 15 years. I'm glad I could help you get your guitar back. Um, and then he includes a picture of when he saw Buckethead at the Rialto in Tucson, Arizona in 2008. Um, you gave me an R2-D2 toy that you used to put up to your pickups. I still have it, and it's one of my fondest memories. Uh, so he does have a website and an email address up if you want to help him find his guitars. So all of that huh. is in the show notes. Wow. Okay. This is awesome. Okay. Um, and then and then one more thing. Hold on. Let me let me just clear my cache. Do you have any other thoughts about Buckethead? Because I have one more Chinese democracy thing we got to talk about. Um. No. It's just so fascinating. Like how many people he's worked with or things that he's he's done. But yeah, keep going. I don't know, man. This is great. Okay. So. So here's where we'll end. Uh, first of all, Buckethead, genius guitar player, loves hardcore porn and uh, puts out a lot of music. So go check him out. And, uh, and seriously, listen to Praxis. Find any Praxis record that Buckethead was on. And those are those are kind of my favorite. I mean, they're completely freaking weird and great and awesome and funky and awesome. And he's done all the stuff with Bootsy. Like, it, I mean, for anyone that's kind of not even a fan or doesn't know who he is, he's, he's definitely worth taking a look at because of how freaking weird. Oh, I did uh, find I did find something else that I didn't include in the show notes, but I will tell you and I may be able to find it and put it in the show notes. So in 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 the earlier side of this research, I come across this article from Vice from the last, I don't know, ten years or something. And it is a piece called My Dinner with Buckethead. And I read it and I realize it takes me about seventy five percent of it when it gets really ridiculous, that it's like a fake piece of fiction that someone has written about what it would be like to have dinner with Buckethead. Mm. But after all of my research, I realize that it feels pretty believable. <laughs> like, like it's so yeah, it ridiculous, does. but like now after I've read all these stories about Buckethead, I'm like, not that far off. Um, okay, now let's talk about Chinese democracy. Obviously, there's more to this story, and you've already alluded to it. It comes out in 2008. Did you know at one point Dr. Pepper said that if they got it out in 2008, they'd get everybody in the world a free Dr. Pepper? I know. Except what, for, what ex- you- They said except for Slash and Buckethead. That was like hmm. the joke that they said. And then, of course, and they, they just- didn't do it because they did get the album out in 2008. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good promotion idea. I just would have not given Axel... The Dr. Pepper. <laughs> so I I remember when it dropped. I remember when Chinese Democracy finally came out. And I remember the thud in, in, in the music world. Like just the, like everyone was sort of like, welp. I mean, there was no way people were going to be disappointed. Do you have real thoughts on Chinese Democracy? Yeah, uh, I heard, I remember when it came out and I made a point to go and listen. And 
I remember listening to all of it and walking away and thinking that the only track that was really good was was better, which they actually still play in concert now, which is interesting. Really? And they do play, yeah, and they do play. I, I think they play the title cut too, sometimes. But they do play better. Better is kind of a regular song in, in the set. But otherwise, I was I thought it was devoid of the personality of the band. So um, not the not well, the same band. I, that's shocking. You wait. So after this whole podcast, you think that that might not have sounded like a cohesive band after 15 years of musicians coming and going? Well, the the one thing was, you know, at the time, it was like, you know, you didn't really have any idea what what the hell you were going to get. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like, what is this going to sound like? It's been so long. Yeah. And and I've had disappointing Guns N' Roses experiences. So... It's like I should have been prepared to have another one. <laughs> so so here's here's where I want to end. I want to end on how one of the songs on Chinese Democracy gets le- leaked. Yeah. Do, do you remember this? Yeah, one of the songs got leaked, yeah. IRS was the name of the song. Uh-huh, yeah. And, and it gets leaked by New York Mets catcher Mike Piazza. <laughs> what? What? So, this is a this is. A, I'm just gonna read this piece, all right? Because like I can't tell it better than this. I, I can't believe this shit. Okay, new, new GNR tune leaked by dot 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 Mets catcher Mike Piazza. This is from September second, two thousand three, written by Joe D'Angelo uh, for MTV.com. Uh, uh, this might be weird if it didn't involve Guns N' Roses, but since it does, it shouldn't be that shocking that New York Mets catcher Mike Piazza is responsible for playing a new Guns N' Roses song on the radio. Oh, well. As he regularly does, Piazza appeared on New York classic rock station Q1043 and their nationally syndicated Friday night show. I bet you used to love this show. Friday Night Rocks with Eddie Trunk. Uh, yes, maybe. I don't know. He shows up to the studio with a CD marked New GNR, which he said he received in the mail three weeks before. And then he persuades Trunk to play the song IRS at 12.15 a.m. on Saturday morning. And the copy I had was definitely several very several generations down. I don't know if the original copy that he had was a direct digital copy from a master or whatever, but... Almost immediately, the station was flooded with calls. One listener described it as combining rock and techno, Axl Rose's distinctive voice on top of Buckethead's unorthodox guitar work. Not all of the calls were complimentary. One was from GNR Management, which issued a verbal cease and desist order. Yeah. Um, because Trunk often deals with that same management company and has a professional relationship with them, he did not argue with the request. There still was the matter of having a new GNR song in circulation. Trunk believes a fan aware of Piazza's love for all things rock sent him the CDR, which also included the instrumental and complete versions of two other songs. So whoever sent Piazza the disc must have obtained it through the studio. Yeah. The GNR camp was so eager to retrieve the disc that they arranged to meet Eddie Trunk, to whom Piazza had given the CD, as soon as possible. And that just happened to be at Shea Stadium while the Mets were playing the Braves. Uh, <laughs> Which is dumb because the Trunk has the CD. Uh, so Axel himself has been lax in protecting access to the band's new material. Two months ago, the singer played new songs at a Las Vegas strip club. 
in order to gauge reaction from the dancers. This is the shit that Axel's doing. Don't watch hardcore porn. Excuse me while I take this demo over to the strip club and see what the strippers think. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of a demo. (laughs) As for Piazza being Comeback Rock's new litmus test, Buckman said it happened more often than you would expect. Mike is a huge music fan. The truth is Mike is so passionate about certain music that I would argue that he's on the top 10 list of real music fans that a band might want to circulate their unreleased stuff to. Wow. I wonder how he felt about the Bell and Sebastian song that checks, <laughs> name checks in. Yeah, that dude. If, that, ask, that ask if he's gay. That song is great. And you're right. I've just now understood the title of that song. That yeah. is that is what that is. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God, dude. We've been on a journey together tonight. And it's all thanks to Tim in Lubbock. It's all thanks to Tim. Yeah, dude. Thanks for this letter, Tim. I mean, I've. You know, I've learned a lot more about Buckethead than I ever thought I would, and I'm so I'm so super excited. I I can't wait to get into the show notes. Thanks for pulling all this together, Brian. This will be fun to read about. If you have a question like Tim, even if it's a general question, like I bet there are some stories, uh, we're happy to go find them for you. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram. Love you guys who are finding us on Instagram and commenting and playing along and having some fun with us. Um, that is backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. And until next time, Mr. Murdoch, what should uh, what should we be doing? Well, how about you guys keep sending emails and we'll keep telling you stories. And uh, chicken coop, what, what what should we do in the chicken coop? Uh, no, turn off the don't porn. remove don't remove the poop. <laughs> Rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.